This week, we were joined by one of our good friends and one of the best young founders we know, Max Marchion. We got into Max's 100-year goals, how we've all changed as people since the last time we recorded together, creativity, intuition, and discussions around life as a founder and VC. This is a magical, long, long conversation. Enjoy. We are super excited to announce that you'll be joined on this episode by our first sponsor of Recess, the furniture startup. So Recess sells everything you need for your home and office, and they've sent us one of their products, which is their office chair, and oh my God, it is the most comfortable thing I've ever sat in. I'm actually really jealous of Sachin because I had a feel in it and it is incredibly comfortable. It makes me more productive and I'm stuck on this chair, which is about to break at any minute. Recess has helped thousands of Aussie startups, including the likes of Eucalyptus, Afterwork and Leica. They also have enterprise customers such as Murbach. How you feel when you're working really matters for your productivity and just for your health as well. So if you want to get fitted out with some furniture, whether it's an ergonomic chair or a soundproof box, um, let us know. We've got discounts for B2C customers for 20%. And if you're a B2B customer, let us know and we'll sort you out. And we're live. Welcome back to a very, very special edition of the Sachin Adam Show. Now, if you guys have been listening to our kind of annoying voices for a while, you realize that probably about a year and a half ago, we did an episode with Max and we called it Sidetracked with Max. And so for context, Max is one of our best friends and we don't get to see each other that much anymore. We're all super busy. So we thought we'd all sit down and have a conversation, discussion um, about a range of topics. Mm. This one has been a long time coming. So we did that first sidetracked episode and it was like a great way to catch up and just like sort of, I feel like they're our normal conversations, but broadcasted to the world. Um, but that was a year and a half ago and there's been a lot that have gone on in all of our lives. And, and I'll quickly interject here and yeah. s- just give a quick introduction of Max to people that don't know him yet. So um, Max is currently founding something in stealth, which we'll talk about at, at a later point. But he's also the founder of um, the investment syndicate Ultraviolet and Next Chapter. And before that, he's done a range of internships, probably most notably with Goldman Sachs. Um, and you studied finance and maths at uni. I don't really know which one it was. Yeah, finance, but, maths, okay. that's a little did bit that of law. after topping law and then dropping out of law. <laughs> Anything you want to add to that intro, Max? Uh, no, <laughs> you've done a better job than I would. <laughs> yeah. Let's not float your ego too much. But at the same time, I think like a lot of people in the startup world know Max. And um, Max is, I don't know, everyone sort of sees you as someone that's going to build an incredible company. Um, one day and you've already built a lot of pressure organizations (laughs) yeah big pressure um so i think in the context of we did this 1.5 years ago 1.5 it's a weird way to say it um i think a good way to start off this episode would be kind of talking about how we've changed and maybe a good way to kind of segment into that is a belief that we've had a year and a half ago that we've changed our mind on now okay um i'm happy to start there are a few things. Um, so for context for everyone listening, I was in San Francisco from the start of August until the end of December. So five months. I feel like I've probably aged five years <laughs> biologically and psychologically <laughs> over that period. Um, the most profound belief shift for me was what I want to do with my life, right? And I realized that when I'm looking back at my life in 100 years time or 80 years time, I want to know that I've worked in something that matters, So I asked myself, okay, what are the hundred year goals I could set myself? And let's make them as crazy as humanly possible. And there were really two that that it came down to for me. One was let's create a new city. And the other was let's try to rebuild healthcare, right? As hundred year goals. 
And the reason why I said it on the healthcare thing is for two reasons. One, it's personally meaningful. I went through a 10-year period of misdiagnosis, had surgery, was told to medicate for life, um, and then off the back of that became, became a huge health geek. But it's also globally meaningful, right? I know that when I'm 100 or 80 or whatever and I'm looking back at my life, I want to know that I've worked on something that actually matters. Um, so that's, a, that's one big belief shift for me. Another big belief shift that really came from living in San Francisco was the importance of matter versus manner. So what someone says versus how they say it. I think in Australia, in the startup scene in Australia, there's a huge bias towards how someone says it. How fast do they speak? How articulate do they sound? Right? And the trope in Australia is that if you're asked a question, you respond quickly and you say a lot and you try to sound smart. The convention in San Francisco is when you're asked a question you pause and you think for 20 seconds or 10 seconds. You don't even say, let me have a think. You literally just pause and you stop talking. And then 10 seconds later, you reply with five words. And those five words are really meaningful. So I think having experienced that firsthand makes me really try to look at what is someone saying? What is the actual content of what they're saying? Does it make sense versus just how they say it? So there are a few things. And I think the final thing is that in San Francisco, I came across a lot of people who had started unicorn companies and what you realize is that they're no different to you and me, mm. right? They're just other humans and they're humans who took risk. They're humans who had a contrarian view of the future and tried to make it happen. They're people who sat there and saw these problems with the world and said, let me try to fix them. But fundamentally, they're not radically different. They're literally the same as so many people around us. Yeah, that's a, such a sick way to start the episode. And I know we're going to dive like a lot deeper into healthcare. So I wanted to talk, talk about the first thing you said, which is rebuilding a city. Well, is that from an aesthetic <laughs> architectural point of view or is that just like, what, what's the motivation with that? So we, we, we got to also get to like how you guys have changed. Yeah. Um, the city side of things, I just don't think many cities are laid out in a way that optimizes quality of life, right? Mm. When people are designing cities, a little bit of thought goes to quality of life, but primarily cities are designed, at least Sydney was designed in a very iterative fashion. Mm. So I think it starts to become very interesting when we think about what sort of design lends to better mental health? What mm. sort of design lends to better human connection? Mm. What sort of design lends to innovation, right? And like, there are, there are lots of tiny things. One example is the width of a street relative to the height of the buildings. If the street is too wide and the buildings are too squat, it feels oppressive. It feels like a concrete jungle. It feels unnatural. And I actually don't think our human biology is used to that unnatural feeling because it isn't what we see or feel in nature. Do you think so, New York's an example of that? Um, no, I think many American cities, um, not New York, streets, yeah. but many American cities are examples of this, okay. right? Really wide streets, yeah. really squat buildings, not many trees, yeah. and it's slightly oppressive. I think Sydney and Melbourne, at least the inner city suburbs, do yeah. a very good job of leafy streets, um, the right width of street width to mm. building height. But that's one variable. And there are like all these different variables that I think change someone's experience in a city. Yeah. And I think when people are designing things, not enough planners think about the psychology mm. of city design. In Italy, there are some. There's this church in Florence. Um, when I was there, so you have the big, you have the big Duomo church, the famous one, and you can walk to the front of that, and obviously you're amazed because it's one of the largest and most magnificent churches in the world. Mm. 
Then if you walk 500, 500 metres north, there's this other church. It's completely unadorned. It's super plain. Mm. You would look at it and it's just nondescript. Yep. But you stand out the front of it and it has this potency. It has this power that I think comes not from any sort of embellishment, but rather from having like the perfect proportions, mm. right? And the Italian architects 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago were masters of proportions. Mm. They understood how we can take ratios we see in nature, ratios like the golden ratio, and actually apply that to design. Mm. And I think modern architecture and, and modern cities have kind of bastardized that or they've just ignored it altogether in favor of oh what looks cool what mm. looks futuristic yeah so um, yeah that's, that's my long round yeah, on yeah, cities yeah, there's so much but, but we, I, we should go to you I, unless you no, have no, a follow-up no, yeah, yeah okay um yeah. got a lot of questions off the back of that I, there's been like i think during covid this whole city yeah. building movement yeah. i think balaji was like a big proponent of that with the network state yeah. sort of decentralized like most cloud-based city. There's been like a startup called Praxis Society that are mm. actually thinking about acquiring land, creating a city, that first principles ground up movement. Are you thinking about this in an abstract way or you're literally thinking about participating at some point in your life in a city building project? Because I see people like talking about these projects, like is it just abstract or are they actually going to do something? And I feel like it's an artistic point of way, if I was to guess, because it's like you have this very like aesthetic appreciation. And I, and I think you told me a long time ago that if you weren't in tech or something, one of the things you considered wasn't being an architect. Yeah, yeah so, so like a, a, a couple of threads. The first job I ever wanted was to be a Lego designer, then it was to be an yeah, architect, yeah, okay. um, and then it was to do other things in the property space. Um, I think, Adam, what you get at is like a really important point, which is that a lot of people talk about doing things. They talk about visions, and they never actually do things, right? And you see this a lot in the tech world. You see a lot of people like, oh, I'm going to join... Atlassian or Google for five years, then maybe McKinsey for a little bit. And then one day I'm going to start something. At heart, I really want to be a founder. And you know what? I think 99.99% of those people aren't actually going to start something. So I think what you're getting at is this fundamental tension between talking about doing things and yeah. actually doing things. I think a lot of that came in with like the whole Web3 era. People <laughs> yeah. making really grandiose yeah. claims about what these companies are going to do. Mm. It's going to change yeah. the world. It's going to decentralize everything. And people sort of started applying it to cities as well. So yeah, my, my take on it is that I think it's very hard to have two bold 100-year goals. So where I've said is, is on the healthcare track, right? And if I manage to do that, if I manage to even make like a mm. dent in that goal, um, then I know I've, I've yeah. somewhat succeeded. Yeah. If I went down the city track, yes, I, I would be completely legitimate about doing it, but I wouldn't do it in the sense of how the... Um, how they're doing it with the line, that project in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah. right? I think that's very hard. I think the easier way to do it is to um, buy up land that already sits uh, on a line of existing infrastructure. So take, let's go to Wollongong or something. Let's, port, let, let's buy a large chunk of land there and start to think about how can we do a city mm. within an existing city mm. versus let's just go to the middle mm. of the desert and start yeah. something from scratch, yeah. which is something that you can do if you're the Saudi Arabian prince who's making yeah. $700 million yeah. dollars a year in, in as well. profit. Like, yeah. There's a really scary element yeah. of like surveillance technology about like just being in this straight line. Like there's utopian aspects, but it's yeah. scary as well. Something I've got to ask is that yeah. like, you talk about this belief thing and you've got these 200 year goals. That's mm. a really marked shift in like who you sort of were, I feel like two years ago. So you're working at Goldman, you're sort of going from like lots of different internships, mm. maybe a little bit more status signal driven. Mm. And now you're like thinking about these massive long-term year beliefs. What was that psychological shift in you that you're thinking super long-term and also like a lot more independently thinking now as well? Mm. I think it comes down to two things. One, the whole explore, exploit idea. Explore everything, taste everything, learn a little bit about a lot. And then when you know what you really like, then when you know what really resonates, then what you know, when you know what you think you're good at, double down on that, mm. right? Burn the boats, go all out. So I think that was number one. I was very much in explore mode. Now I'm in 
double down, sense. burn the boats yeah. mode. I think the other thing is I was a little bit too mimetic. Mimetic meaning uh, I, inheriting my desires from others, yeah. copying others, mm. seeing good as defined by what other people see as good versus mm. what I intrinsically think matters. So I think they're probably the two big shifts. Mm. Um, enough on that. <laughs> let, let, let's go to you guys. Thank you so much. Um, and I, I could talk about the Lion Project for, for hours yeah. as well, but we can do that another time. Um, how do you think? How do you think you guys have changed over the past year? Sachin, I know obviously you've started a new job, and Adam, you too. So yeah, let's go one by one. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm happy to go. So I guess like the big changes that have happened in my life is that last year, um, starting March, I had like three big changes. Sort of yeah. broke up with my me and my girlfriend broke up, moved into a household with my two best friends, and then started my strategy consulting role at Deloitte. And I think like the really big change I see over from them until now is that I was in a really, really exploratory mode all of last year. I was like saying yes to everything. I was sort of in your phase, Max, I would say, how you're like trying lots of different things, like meeting lots of people, saying yes, like opening myself up to lots of different ideas. But I've realized I was just like stretched really thin last year. Um, and I think I like I took on habits that were not that authentic and were not that helpful for me as well. And so I was in that stage and I think like sort of late last year, I started to get this shift about taking more intentional actions and like really thinking about what I wanted for my future and sort of like doubling down on goals and the things that really filled my cup. I think like that idea of something filling your cup is like really resonated with me. And so I think I started to make a bunch of behavior changes. And then this is going to sound so wanky and eat, pray, love, but I went to Bali. And I wasn't expecting much from a holiday in Bali. And I've been amazing for two uh, reasons. Like, yeah. or three. So first, I had a lot of fun. Secondly, I did this sort of think week and this really reflective week. And thirdly, I actually met my current girlfriend, who's now staying with me, which has been really beautiful and amazing. But I had this like sort of week for reflection and just like, Similar to you thinking from the ground up how I want to live my life and where I want to aim myself towards. And so thinking about like, what are the values that are important to me? Where is there misalignment in my values? And I realized that last year there was a lot of misalignment mm. in terms of who I was spending time with, how I was spending time and doing things that were based off desires, like really uh, in um, biological. biological desires rather than just like, really considering and thinking like <laughs> yeah. what I wanted to do. Right. Yeah. And so I came from, I did so much reflection, like tens of notion pages. I've come back <laughs> with like, I think the two big changes is wanting to live life with more clarity and intentionality. Clarity is about like really understanding what you want out of life instead of being, there being like a fog of like thousands of ideas in your mind, being clear and like, what are those like two to three things that you want um, long-term or in any given moment as well. And then second thing is being more intentional. And like actually thinking about your actions in a really thoughtful and deep way. And mm. so I'm trying to like live those two values like really deeply yeah. uh, into this year. And it's really come like shifted. My what are like some stuff. like kind of tactical ways you've manifested those things? So one, like I think like there's, uh, there's heaps. So two examples is like one of them is just like drinking a lot less alcohol or like mm. almost not drinking alcohol. I always tease Adam now that he's a lemonade man. Yeah. On that um, yeah. Like I realized that last year I got into the fashion of going out a lot. I was meeting new people at work, meeting new people are just in the area, making heaps of friends, drinking. And it was like sort of fun, but I realized it wasn't cup feeling. Like it wasn't actually fully like making me feel it. If I was going out, like having these sort of big nights and 
I realized like one of the things that makes me super fulfilled is like running in nature with friends. Like I love running. I love being out in nature. So that's something I'm just doing more. Like I've started like sort of a small running club, running club um, with friends every Saturday morning and then doing like weekly ones by myself. And secondly, just like reflecting and reading more, just like having actual quiet time to reflect on ideas about yourself and about the world. And like, I'm pretty extroverted, but I love introverted times as well. Yeah. Just like spending a Friday night with myself, with my laptop like chat gpt open like got some books open just journaling like that's the best time for me mm, so to dive into that a bit more i feel like a lot of people want to be more intentional right how did how can someone start to become more intentional and what does it look like more tactically for you as saturn was getting at does it look like here are the three times i drink does it look like here are the times i might use social media and not use social media or is it much more sporadic, spontaneous and on the spot? You're kind of like, mm. let me actually step back and consider something before doing it. I'd say like reflection first and foremost. Mm -hmm. So I think like, I think like a really crazy thing that doesn't happen is like, why don't we have like quarterly like retreats where we go off by ourselves on a weekend to an Airbnb and just think about our life, for example. And that's sort of what I did with Bali. Like for a year, I just thought about my life. Um, and I actually got like so much clarity about the ways that I wasn't living true to myself last year and the ways that I was living true to myself and you can just measure the gap and see like what are the behaviors that I've got to change based on that and so it's like big reflective uh phases and then like Friday night Saturday morning just like going to a cafe and writing like how do you feel are you happy with yourself how can you change things in your calendar every week that are actually gonna like align with what you want Mm, so I think, I think that's a big thing. Yeah, and, and I think a, a, another tactical way to do that is like audit your calendar, like in, in retrospect mm. and look back, what are the things that gave you energy? What are the things you didn't really want to do? Yeah. And what are the things you kind of had to do? And, and coming, tying back to what you said before about these kind of 200-year goals you have, they came from reflection, right? They probably mm. came from quiet time, really listening to and reflecting on, hey, I had these experiences in mm. health when I was young. They've really driven me towards doing all this biohacking stuff. I love startups, joining all those things together, right? Yeah. That only comes to reflection. You didn't consume that on a podcast yeah. or like, you know, talk to someone else about it. That's like yeah. you speaking to yourself and realizing what you want. And I think what Adam is getting at is people don't really do that enough. And the only reason I have confidence to say that is because we ask this question to everyone we meet. Like our podcast at its core is about what drives someone and how they got yeah. there. And it's fascinating to see how different people get to those things. And I would say with certain confidence that a lot of people go through life not, not really knowing like yeah. what they actually want and who they actually want to be. I've got to drop a book here. So we just recently read Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. Both absolutely loved it. I read it in Bali and like a book hasn't spoken to me more than like in years. So I read a lot of like, I love autobiographies and I read a lot of them from like business people, entrepreneurs, highly analytical and rational people, but I don't read about artists much. Mm. And so Matthew McConaughey is someone that has had to be a creative artist, but also navigate Hollywood bureaucracies and like think in an analytical way as well. Like just like be achievement oriented. And he's lived so much of his life through intuition, like listening like deeply to like his heart's desires and like what he feels like is right for him. And he goes a bit woo woo, a bit spiritual, but he's like grounded in the same sense. And I like really admired that because like I realized like how much am I actually listening to like what I really want in a moment? How much, like how often during a week or during a month do I have clarity about what's actually right for me? And so it was about trying to live more of like a artistic Matthew McConaughey life where you're really listening and not being just analytical and not just being like mimetic. Do you think intuition is um, intrinsic or biased? And what I mean by that, do you think your intuition is what you actually want or do you think it's biased by 
what the world tells yeah. you might, you might I mean, want. I think there's different types of intuition and there'll be like times of like alignment where you'll feel something's really right. Mm-hmm. Like you're just intuition like that. A lot of that's going to come off like your social conditioning, right? And I think our, our analytical brains can really like try and see where that comes from. And is it like, I, I know what you're getting at. Is there bias towards that leading to your mm. intuition? And it's like, I think there's this whole, I, I don't know, like you can make the whole kind of nurture argument and nature argument and say, okay, we have these you know these things in our genes we have these things in our upbringing and our kind of intuition can only be created from these two experiences interacting together i don't actually know the answer but i think there's probably something else there and yeah. that, that's when you get into the religious and spiritual world yeah. like do you guys have moments in your life where you really click with something and it becomes really clear it can be like something you want to do in life or just an idea that like really grabs you Yes, but I think often when an idea grabs me, it's actually confirmation bias. It's almost like something I already know and it's articulated in a new or novel way or it adds depth okay. to something I know yeah. and therefore it grabs me. Intuition, though, I've found a really interesting topic to think about lately in my own life because it, it's because of its role in decision-making, right? There's always this, this balance between intuition and data. Mm-hmm. And the way I've kind of conceptualized intuition is intuition is access to experiences stored in our subconscious. And people who have good intuition or good judgment, which is often another word that's used for intuition, I think have two characteristics or three characteristics. One is they have had lots of experiences, right? They've seen a lot, they've done a lot. Two is that they have very high storage. They actually store those experiences. You're talking about people as yeah, yeah. robots. So, so yeah, no, I'm literally an- analogizing it to computers, right? Like I actually mean storage much in the sense that a computer has storage. Someone has size storage. Yeah. They're able to actually remember their experiences and what they've learned from those yeah. experiences. And then to like extend the computer analogy out more, they have high RAM. So in the instance of making a decision, they're able to hold five mm. or 10 of these things in their head simultaneously and subconsciously. And the amalgamation or composition of those things helps them make a decision. So, well, I'm not going to say actually helps them make a decision. It can, can help them make a decision, but it can help them help bring them to a mountain. There's this saying that intuition brings you to a mountain, data helps you climb it. Mm. And I found that is like increasingly, wow. increasingly true. That's cool. Mm. cool. No, I think like that's a really good reflection on it is that you've got to balance up those, those two minds because there is a massive bias. Like when you latch onto something, you're going to feel like emotionally sort of attached to it, but then you also want to analytically reflect on it. And I think that's something you do very well, Max, because I feel like there's a sense where you don't, maybe you don't trust your immediate thought. Like you're very considered and reflective with actions that you think are important and you take your time to make decisions. And I think you balance those two things well. Yeah, I, I think it, it's always like a balance between like speed and certainty, mm. right? And often 80% of the information is enough to make a decision. I think I used to be more perfectionistic. Mm. Now I think I'm much more like, okay, 80% of the information yeah. is enough to make a decision. 100% is impossible. So let's try to make the most accurate decision possible with the least amount of information. And I've tried to actually just practice that in all areas of my life. Whenever I have a belief now, I try to put my money where my mouth is, right? So like a classic example of that is if, if, if I have a belief in, in, in markets, don't just say it, right? Who cares if you say Facebook's undervalued or chat GPT is going to mean NVIDIA is going to pop. Actually put your money where your mouth is. And I found that trying to put skin in the game behind what I say forces mm. me to assess my conviction in what I'm mm. saying. And I think one thing I found in the past, I used to say everything with high conviction and people used to think that meant I was high conviction. Whereas yeah. I can say something with the exact same modalities, the exact same conviction 
And on one of them, I can I cannot believe that I can be red teaming. Mm. Another instance of that, I could be like low conviction, or another instance, I could could be high conviction. So internally, with the different companies I'm, I'm I'm running at the moment, whenever I put a view out there, I give it a conviction rating. I say low conviction, medium conviction, or high conviction, right? And that gives people a sense of okay, how much challenge do, do I want in this? How open am I to changing my mind on this, etc. Yeah, and I think following on on that conviction point, that's something that really kind of spoke to me out of the Tim Doll episode. Mm-hmm. That whole idea he said about putting something out there to improve your thinking with kind of, I don't think he like alluded to having a conviction rating attached to it, but that's something I'm thinking about a lot more, like putting the skin in the game and actually saying an idea and creating something rather than just mimetically consuming information and repeating what someone else has said on the All In podcast. Mm. I I think convictions, the idea of it's really interesting as well, because if you're like just a really smart person, like you've got high IQ and you know a lot, it doesn't mean you're going to have conviction. Like you could be a venture investor and come across so many amazing ideas, but the people that like make the change, get the upside, in the world of people that they're bold risk takers and they have conviction about ideas and they've got the clarity and certainty that they can hone in one thing and that's something we liked a lot about tim was that like he has conviction about ideas he puts them out into the world and then he has a battle ideas and then he tests it and i think that's like a big testament to you is that they're constantly testing and iterating with those convictions and then eventually building greater conviction yeah, 100%. They see something wrong with the world and they try to do something about it, right? There are a lot of people who complain about something and they don't do anything about it, mm. right? Or they say, you have a lot of people who say, oh, this stock is going to go up. I like this company for X, Y, Z reason. And they don't do anything about it. You have a lot of people who decry Bitcoin or a lot of people who proselytize Bitcoin and some of them just won't do anything about it. Why, why do you think that is? Because yeah. I just want to tie this to what you said earlier yeah. around how people will stay in corporate jobs for five, 10 years saying they'll start a startup and never actually do it. Why do you think why do you think those things play out? I think people aren't trained to take risk. Mm. And this comes through the school system. We don't get rewarded for taking risk in the school system. In the school system, you get rewarded for doing what your teacher wants to see. Mm. Right? You get rewarded for answering the question the way the teacher wants you to answer the question. The the most annoying meme is that one where a teacher asks you a question. People give five responses and it's not correct until you say the exact same thing the teacher is thinking of, Mm. right? You guys probably have been in that situation before. And I think this actually extends to markets as well. There's this whole trope now of, I just invest in the index fund because your returns are better that way. I agree that your returns will probably be better that way, but I think it also teaches people not to take risk, right? Mm. And I think there's actually a lot of value in losing money in markets. There's a lot of value in actually learning to allocate capital, to put your money where your mouth is. Um, and then I think the final thing I'd say there is, is it probably um, it probably extends to like the competitive world, mm. right? People are increasingly told to be less competitive. There's this trope that if you're competitive, you're cutting others, uh, you're, you're cutting you're cutting others down. There's this idea now that the children are taught that there are two winners or that everyone's a winner, and I kind of disagree with that, right? I think in a world where you teach people that everyone's a winner in an artificially constructed like school or sporting environment, you don't prepare people for how the actual world works. You don't prepare people for resilience. You don't prepare people to get pushed down and then be able to step back up. So I think there are probably a few things there, but um, we could we could all go yeah. on forever. Let's so Sachin, you, Sachin. Um, how have you changed? Before yeah, but before we finish the podcast, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. um, I'll probably tie these two yeah. kind of themes that both of you spoke about. And, and I think the first way I think I've changed is this kind of desire more to create than consume. And I think that manifests off having this belief now that everyone has something to share with the world, and they just have different kind of modalities of expressing it and most people haven't found that so 
that's led to me being a lot more interested in artists and this kind of this world that you can't explain through logic and structure. And so an example of that is someone like Leonardo da Vinci. So he's this fantastic right and left brain thinker. Like he's an artist, he's a scientist, he's, you know, he, he's a writer, They're like all these things put together. And I've been really fascinated about how great people combine this left and right brain thinking. Um, so the way th that's kind of manifested in my own life is now I'm trying to kind of publish a lot more content. I'm trying to put my views out there a lot more, but I'm also, it's like this, it's kind of changed what's encoded inside me in, in a certain way where I'm obsessed with sharing experiences because I know that when you create something, it doesn't have to be the most novel idea in the world. It doesn't have to kind of move the fabric of the universe, but I think it's one of the most important things we can do for our soul. And I know that sounds really woo-woo, but I actually think everyone has, like, you know, we have a limited time on earth. You can create companies, you can create, create art, you can create kind of stories. But I think when we, in, a, in our world of like overconsumption, like the average person will go to work, come home, watch Netflix, never really kind of put something out into the world. And that, that, that's been a big belief shift of mine that I think everyone should kind of lean into their creative side more. Mm. just to like sort of challenge um in in a good way so like mm. you're talking about creating more content mm. um what would like be the best like sort of case scenario of like you creating like what's the best thing that you could do if you like really push yourself yeah. like what would be the upper tier of creation for you i think that like the upper tier of creation would be creating a company um and i think lower tiers are kind of podcasting i think lower tiers are writing i think you, but you can also create events and spaces and kind of experiences with people. Mm. So I, I, I think there's like different tiers, but I think the upper tier would be a company. And I think I am leaning towards later in my life going back to that. I think I probably, I, I don't know if it's a punch in the face, but like my dad started a disability tech company. And I did that with him for two years. And just seeing our family, like not having income, seeing how difficult it is, mm. kind of made me like put that aside and maybe gave me a bit of imposter syndrome with it. And I think right now I get to talk to the most brilliant founders every day and I see like the level of risk they take, the level of ambition they have. And I think it's the most wonderful thing in the world. Like what really pisses me off now is when people put VCs above founders. I think that's like one of the most ridiculous things on earth. These are the people that are taking risks. These are the people that are putting something novel out into the world. And I think as a society, that's what we should hold to, to, to the ultimate kind of status. People that create, whether that's a company, whether that's writing, whatever it is. I think those people that try and like turn themselves inside out and almost give themselves to putting something new out in the world. That's the thing that I respect the most. Mm. Have you, do you think most people should um, create in some way or do you think some people are more inclined or some people should be creators some people shouldn't I, be I think everyone should create because okay. I think that's how you learn and like express yourself to yeah. kind of the world and, 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 and I think when we hear creative we immediately think artists we immediately mm. think someone with this certain disposition but that's probably like if I if I try and kind of package up what I'm saying I don't think you need to be that certain disposition I think everyone has that in them somewhere everyone has a moment in their life where something has moved them, whether that's like a photograph, whether that's, you know, a, a piece of writing they've read. Mm. And I think that if, if that kind of has moved you and you've resonated with someone else's creation, you, everyone has a unique life experience. Everyone has kind of a unique way of viewing that world, of viewing the world. And like tying this back to like startups and stuff, like you have a unique, unique way of kind of viewing healthcare and that's why you're going after this certain thing. And I think everyone has that it's in certain segments of their life and I'm a lot more passionate about people putting it out there 
And it doesn't even have to be like, oh, building a public brand and writing publicly. It can just mm. be like sitting with yourself and writing about this thing or sitting with yourself and painting this thing. And just, I don't know, it's, it's just, I, I can't articulate that well in words, but it's like turning yourself inside out and putting what's special and unique about you into the world. Mm. Mm. That's really beautiful. Putting your ideas sort of deep, in when you, deep within you outside into the world. Yep. Did you have something to say on that one, Max? Um, no, no I, I agree with yeah. what you said. Mm. I think it's an expression of humanity, mm. right? To be able to, I think creativity, like risk-taking, has almost beaten out of people. Mm. Um, I think inherently humans are made to be creative. If you rewind thousands of years, the artists, the builders, the writers, the poets were held in high regard. Um, Whereas now, whether it's because of capitalist motives or just because of how the school system has iterated, Mm. I think creativity has been slightly bastardized. Mm. I think when people grow up in school, you have like the creatives and the non-creatives and people are told that if they're not good at art, therefore they're a non-creative. And I really like what you've done, which is broadening the definition of the word creative Mm. or creator, right? Because... Too many people think it's art or music or something like that. Whereas what you're saying is opinions. Mm. I hold an opinion and I, I create something in line with that opinion, mm. right? What you're saying is that it is um, just expression. It's authenticity. Mm. Um, and in a way, people aren't creative with their personality now. Mm. I think you guys have probably seen it. There are a lot of people who go through university and speak and act the same as everyone else. They never really know exactly who they are. And it probably goes back to this creative idea um, and how creativity isn't just about, yeah, isn't just about art, isn't just about music, but is about who am I? How can I express that into the world? Um, and that, that sort of thing. And, and I think the co- common pushback on this is that if everyone starts creating, then the average quality of content goes down. Like we had that kind of last year where everyone had a Substack and everyone was writing and there was this whole notion of how you have to earn your right to create. And I don't think that's a bad thing though because it's like if everyone puts out content into the world, eventually it's going to get sort of filtered out and there's mm. going to be hierarchies that form. Mm. Like if everybody's creating a Substack, there'll be a hierarchy and we'll know which ones are the good ones, which ones are the shit ones. Yeah. Yeah, but and the shit ones, they will eventually sort of Darwinism, they'll go out. But like, I think what I'm trying to get at is you don't have to do it for others. You can do it for yourself. Like it, it can be by yourself quietly trying out a, a different mm. kind of creative hobby. And that's something I'm trying to do more now is like, how do, I, how do I create things that aren't just for public and also for me and like my unique way of expressing myself into the world? Do you think the world needs followers though? Because I think it does. Mm. Um, yeah, like, I mean, if you're creating something, yeah. you've got to like have people on your bandwagon to support you. Of course it needs followers. And for every founder, there has to be a couple hundred employees. Yeah. Mm. There's got to be like the cult leader and the cult followers. But, but I think like, let's say in that founder example, those each hundred kind of people that work for that founder, mm. they could have their own kind of creative, you, you know, you know, hobbies. Like I'm not just talking about these things that are wide and monetizable. I just think as a kind of a shift in thinking, we should think more about, Hey, if I look back at this year of my life, what are the net new things I brought out into the world? I don't have to have this massive wide impact, but for myself and my kind of consolidation of my experiences and ideas that I believe, what is kind of the net new that I put out in the world? That's a great frame, the net new things you brought out into the world. Um, I'm really keen to change the topic on to something about, uh, talking about growth curves. And I think this will be a nice segue into talking about you as a founder and the sort of healthcare industry more broadly. Something that you're really fascinated about, Max, is this idea about, 
um, like what should you look for in sort of potential candidates if you're hiring? You've always talked about these people that have a really sort of accelerated growth curve, people that they might not like look really good right now, but they've got massive potential in the future. And you're a great example of that from where you came two years ago to where you are now. When you consider like your sort of knowledge base, you've got like healthcare, AI, your skills and just your general competence as a founder. So I'd love to like hear your reflections on how you've sort of gone on this big growth curve in the past two years and how some of your behaviours have changed along the way to becoming a sort of better, uh, faster sort of learning, um, a, a better human being. Yeah, okay, so a, a couple of things. Um, I'll start with like my growth curve, then get to the point you're talking about with hiring. I think ju- just for context for the audience, uh, I'll, I'll try to like unpack what we mean by growth curve. So I see talent uh, across like three vectors. Um, you have distance, which is how much someone has done. You have growth, which is how fast someone is growing. And then you have acceleration, which is, are you growing at an increasing rate? One unit year one, two units, four, eight, 16, 32, 64, 128, right? And I think the thing that's really interesting is to look for acceleration. And then the question is, okay, what makes up accelerators? And it tends to be people who take each experience and they use that to do far more than they did previously. Um, if I look at the character, so, and, and the reason I think this is important, and I, I felt this more in the US, in the US there are lots of people who have a lot of distance or at least signal that they have a lot of distance. People come out of the womb in the US signaling. Right, um, And that's because the school system is set up that way. To get into your Stanfords and Harvards, you need to have built a resume. You need to have started a charity or a small company. right? So everyone is doing that because it's what you're meant to do. And that means by the time someone gets to the age of 24 in the US, they have a really stacked resume. And that's all well and good. But if everyone has that, how do you know who's who? How can you actually compare people? And I think the way you actually start to compare people is you look at who has done more each subsequent year they have been alive right? Who started off not doing much? Maybe they grew up in a background where they never even knew what VC or startups were. They didn't know what investment banking or consulting was. But then they discover that and very quickly they have a job. Then they have two jobs. Then they're starting their own thing. Um, And I think the two traits that tends to come down to are curiosity and drive. Curiosity, the people who on the weekends are spending their time reading, the people who are questioning literally everything, the people who are questioning the question, the people who when they were younger like to learn a little bit about a lot. And then drive, the the idea that people are willing to work hard, they have high stamina, they're willing to give up, um, give up some things for other things. And I think you can proxy curiosity and drive by A, understanding what someone was like when they were younger, and B, by like kind of looking at their actions, right? Actions often speak louder in words. And then C, also by questions. Questions being like the most gameable. Um, in terms of the implication of that for hiring, I think it's a really interesting one. I, 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 don't, I don't pretend to have the answer. Um, I think you need to balance hiring people with acceleration and people with distance, right? If you only hire people with acceleration, you're going to have a team who has no fucking idea what they're doing. If you only hire people with distance, you're going to have a team that doesn't continue to get exponentially better as the startup grows. So I really think it's a balance. I think with investing, it's also a balance. You can't invest in the 15-year-old who has the highest acceleration because they're still 15 and they probably still have limited distance. 
But I think what when it becomes interesting is when you're spotting underrated talent and when you're trying to follow them on their journey. So that's what we do with Next Chapter, right? Mm. The whole premise of Next Chapter, this is like an, an online community I run, is let's try to find people who have really steep growth curves or who are accelerating. We call them accelerators. Mm. And let's find them before they've done a lot. Let's not give a shit about what credentials they have, but let's actually try to assess them for the person they are. Mm. So that's kind of how I think about yeah the any, idea of growth kind curves. Of like questions that you think because i think distance is easy to gauge any kind of questions particularly in accelerating that you found useful yeah um what do you like to do in your spare time and your weekends um how do you compare to your siblings Mm. right if someone says my my brother likes to work very hard um he's very ambitious what does that say about you Mm. right um asking someone what are their goals and what are they willing to give up to achieve those goals. I like that give up point. Um, I think the Peter Thiel question, what's something you believe about the world that others don't is interesting. I think too mm. many people now game it. Yeah. Um, what else would I say? So yeah, there, there are a few, something there are a few to things. Add there. Yeah. I think like what's really important apart from curiosity and drive is being a really good first principles thinker because I think yeah. the opposite of someone that's on an accelerated growth curve is someone, obviously that's on a linear one. So like maybe imagine investment banker who they do a few years in investment banking, they go to a private equity fund, then they go to a hedge fund and they're doing like, it's, it's really hard. It requires a lot of stamina and you've got to be intelligent, yeah. but it's a very linear sort of trodden path and you're not making like accelerated jumps really. An accelerated jump is someone that's like super thoughtful about their life and about what they want to do and they think from the first principles it's like okay now i've had this experience what's the best thing i could do next so i think like having like a very reflective personality that can think from first principles about what's best next is when you can take those exponential jumps mm. what do you guys think are like questions or ways of seeing whether someone has high growth or high acceleration and like a caveat for everyone listening is like the whole world shouldn't try to be high growth and high accelerator people mm. right it's a very polarizing ideology the idea that um, high acceleration means that you're working 100 hours a week for the next 60 years i actually don't think most people want to be that type of person i don't actually think most people want to be crazy accelerators mm. i don't think most people actually born to be crazy accelerators but with that caveat what do you guys think of the ways of identifying underrated talent the questions you might ask the traits you're looking for etc i'm just gonna check yeah 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 now for a quick break from the podcast and satch we've been wanting to hire someone for a while haven't we yeah i can see the bags under your eyes from all the editing you've been doing yeah it's getting pretty tedious to edit these podcasts week after week but i don't really know where to start when hiring someone yeah, I've got a friend in the Philippines, actually, that I think would make a brilliant hire for the show, but I don't know the first thing about getting them onboarded. Yeah, see, that just like makes me nervous. It's like <laughs> payroll, insurance, all these forms that you've got to think of. Look, we're probably going to break a law if we try <laughs> to do that. <laughs> Luckily, our friends at Employment Hero have a great solution for this. They've got a new product called Global Teams, which helps you set up new employees from around the world, even when your business isn't operating in their region. Yeah, this is awesome. And you also get um, access to global talent teams, which is really cool when you're trying to hire from all around the world. And it's actually um, one of our friends, Ben Thompson, who runs Employment Hero, who's been on the podcast before. So we were really stoked to partner with this such a great organization. Ben is an absolute legend. We're very keen to have a beer with him soon. But if you're having troubles hiring people around the world, I highly recommend you check out Employment Hero. Like a lot of thoughts come to mind. Um, So I'm just going to go off the top of my head. I think a, a first core thing that I really like to understand someone is kind of their story and how that and how their kind of distance using your frame fits in with their story. So for example, we can't know the quality of someone's distance without knowing like what's driven them. And as you said, they could be from a low socioeconomic family, they could have had, you know, caring for an elderly parent 
and done X, Y, Z. Like they could be kind of caring from an elderly parent or someone with a disability and got credit kind of averages at uni while studying a couple of hours a week because that's all they had time for. So I think knowing someone's context is really important. And I think those things are sometimes hard to get across in first meetings because they can be sensitive. But I think as much I really like understanding someone's kind of life trajectory and what's driven them along that along those kinds of decisions. I think the second thing is is like some like a top something I really think about a lot is how much someone indexes to their signals. And I think that's sometimes inversely kind of related with how much someone thinks they're going to accelerate. So for example, if someone has been like I don't know at an MBB consulting firm and they constantly reference that I've seen this kind of with some startups I've met and that's kind of like almost their answer for certain things, then I think that's almost a negative signal because it's like they're anchoring on this and they almost feel like that's maybe the the height of where they'll get to, if, if that makes sense. Um, and I think the kind of third thing is like how they answer questions on the fly that they were not expecting. So I will sometimes try when I'm meeting companies and I'm trying to assess their thinking is try and stump them on a question they probably haven't been asked from other funds. Um, and I can't give a good example of that because they're all contextual to the kind of type of company or the type of founder or the type of person. But seeing that also shows how much they can kind of bend to not game the system and actually mm. think for themselves in those kind of scenarios. Two potential like biases in mm. there. Um, one, how do you think about the first one looking at someone's narrative, mm. how do you think about that being confounded by whether someone has actually thought about a response or whether someone's actually good at articulating that? I think that there's probably a relationship with how someone should, like we've talked yeah. about reflection this episode. <clears throat> yeah. right? And I think that if someone has kind of tried to link pieces of their narratives to understand what drives them, I think that's like probably the first sign of them actually knowing this is something they want to do and know why they're doing it. But I think, like, of course, if someone has difficulty talking about it or it's, like, not something they feel comfortable sharing, it's not like I'm going to be, like, no. But I think, like, I, I tweeted this kind of a couple of days ago and I think there's probably two broad people. There's people that are driven by ideas and there's people that are driven by stories. And I'm not saying stories can't be ideas, but there's people that are really comfortable talking about things outside of them, talking about inflation rates or why this founder did X, Y, Z. And then there's those people talk comfortable with reflecting about themselves and reflecting about their story and narratives. And if that person isn't in that category, I don't think that disadvantages them, but I find it easier to understand people when they're in that category. I wonder whether you could be able to classify founder success based on how someone's parents describe the child. Mm. Like I suspect people's parents would see a lot of what you're talking about in someone from a young age. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I, it's interesting I don't know that. about that because I think yeah. a lot of founders, it's um, they had backgrounds that were quite, quite polarizing. Yeah. Um, they might've been like pretty naughty and rebellious. Maybe they didn't like listen too much in class. And I think it's quite easily to over index on those things. Mm. If you ask like a, a parent about like what what's your young child being like at school she's like oh he's naughty he's rebellious he doesn't listen to the questions you're not immediately going to be like that's the next steve jobs right mm -hmm. it's like there's like subtle nuances of someone's personality that gives them the traits of like being that independent sort of bold well, what, 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 if, what if you hear the parent describe the son or daughter as okay they're kind of rebellious they don't listen in class they still top all their classes mm. at home they spend 12 hours a day reading or mm. gaming or coding they want to splice dna to yeah. grow lab-grown meat <laughs> um which is kind of stupid i'm telling them they shouldn't do it it's not going to work like what happens if you hear the combination of those traits 
Invest. Well, okay, so that's not hyperbole, but what happens if you hear like the combination of some of those traits, right? Do you, do you mm. think you'd be able to build a classifier from it? Or do you think there are actually a surprising amount of people who fall into these? So there's, there's two ways it can go. Either one um, is very noisy because there's a lot of people in who have these traits who don't become founders and therefore you have a high false positive rate. The counter, the, or, or maybe you have a high false negative rate. And the way high false negative rate would come about is if you have lots of founders who actually never had that back, background. They were never liked it as a child, but then they have um, success as a founder. I find like a lot of people only become like fully conscious when they're like 18 or maybe even 20 or so. Yeah. And a lot of your younger years, like you said, the word mimetic, we're sort of just following people. Like you go to high school, you start playing sport, you get interested in girls and parties and stuff. And a lot of your activities are not like truly like authentically driven. And I think when you find young kids that are doing things that are sort of a bit against the grain, mm. against the norm of like what is maybe considered like a good in that hierarchy when you're yeah. growing up, that's a unique thing. And so you want to hone in that, okay, there's someone that's a bit different, that's a bit independent. And then are they doing sort of good independent things or bad independent things? And I think the reason why someone like Josh Wolf says chips on shoulders put chips in pockets mm. is those people that are outside the hierarchy usually – don't get rewarded for it at younger years and they're often bullied or like not understood very well. And I think that's why there's this kind of this trend in Silicon Valley where people look for those people with those kinds of backgrounds because they're usually kind of symbols of having a chip on your shoulder. The, the other classifier I want to build on that point is looking for non-mimetical idiosyncratic speaking styles to proxy. Oh, sorry, slow down. <laughs> Relax, so robot. Not, not non-mimetic meaning like, say yeah. unusual speaking styles. Yeah. Yeah. So the hyperbole would be um, Elon Musk, right? Mm. He sounds quite strange when he speaks. Mm-hmm. And the reason Peter why Thiel I think there's... Well. Peter Thiel as well. The reason why I think there's a correlation between non-mimetic or like strange speaking styles and found the success is that... A strange speaking style suggests that when someone was younger, they were slightly on the spectrum and therefore they never internalized the dogma of society. So the mechanism that leads to them having a slightly strange speaking style is never fully getting the world for the way it is, never fully following how other people do things. Mm. And that trait also mechanistically leads to having contrarian views of the future mm. and building a company. And that, and that's why I think a lot of the founders actually don't sound like many other people. Mm. Compare that to politicians. They all sound the same. Radio presenters, they all sound the same. But that's also Sports because people. of like who their audience is as well. Like if you're a politician and you're on the yeah. radio trying to appeal to everyone. And so most politicians, that's not their true style. Like they I, I agree, but that. you could also take that of like friends uh, in your school who mm. aren't necessarily founders. I'd say on average they, they sound the same or they try to speak the same or they try to have the same mannerisms. Whereas if you look at founders, particularly look at founders before they have media training, they all sound very different and different from each other as well. Mm. Whether it was Jeff Bezos, whether it was Jack Dorsey, whether it was Mark Zuckerberg, whether it was Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Adam Newman, Elizabeth Holmes, they all have like a weird manner of speaking. Mm. And I suspect like the confounding variable here is that they had a slight, they were slightly on the spectrum and that led them to have... Uh, to not internalize the dogma of society. Push mm-hmm. back on it as well, because this is, I keep a list of irrational beliefs because I don't have proof for them. And this mm-hmm. is one of the irrational beliefs. I, so I, it's a low conviction belief. <laughs> yeah, I just, I think that yeah. we shouldn't equate for being on the spectrum to kind of being outside of society. Yeah. It's like, I think it's correlation rather than causation. Mm. And I think that there's people that are outside of kind of communicating different styles and stuff like that where 
they wouldn't kind of be on the spectrum, but it also yeah, defines how, it's also how you define the spectrum. Yes. Is the spectrum yeah, based yeah. on how close you are to you know the yeah. average person in society and the way they communicate? So I'm not sure, and I, I think there's like confounding variables mm-hmm. like kind of background, whether it's kind of. Uh, I think the biggest one would be nationality and culture. Mm-hmm. If you're from different cultures and you come to the West to Western society, there's uh, kind of probably things that are harder to unlearn in the way you speak or the way you think, et cetera, et cetera. Or English may be your second language and that may actually affect how you express yourself in that language that are actually hard to deduce where that is on the spectrum. That makes sense. I agree completely with Sachin. Like, I think that it's important not to anchor this just to the idea of being on the spectrum. Like, I think there's like some really big examples, uh, like sort of mask TL, people that are big in culture, but there's all different reasons why you can be um, an outsider think differently why you've had experiences from a young age where you're not going to buy into hierarchies or social norms um, all yeah. that sort of stuff yeah, yeah I think like the really good point here is that spectrum isn't the right word spectrum mm. is a very loaded word yeah and probably the better word it's is also just like highly yeah. specific to one type of person as well. yeah yeah I think the better word is someone may, maybe someone who's independent mm. when they were young stays yeah. being yeah. independent yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I um yeah, I wanted to get your ideas on this as well because, like, sort of contributions to accelerators. Mm. I've been like sort of mentoring and giving advice to a bunch of uni students lately, and I think like my when I'm trying to give advice, I'm thinking about how can they accelerate. Poor students, huh? I said poor students. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about like yeah. how can I give advice? Go to Bali. Just, <laughs> like God, how they can just like really accelerate like everything that we're saying. And I came up with sort of three things that I think are important. Yeah. The first one is this idea of velocity and it's about like acting really quickly and sort of getting quick feedback loops and like taking action. I think you're a really great example of that, Max. So let's say that we had a coffee and you gave me like all these ideas, things I should read, people I should reach out to. That means like really quickly acting on that, being in the world, reading the books, reaching out to the next person and then sort of coming back to you with like, hey, I learned this, this and this and going back in these feedback loops of like learning something theoretically doing something action-oriented in the world and then letting that sort of flywheel start. Mm. And I think you've got to do that when you're young. That's like coffees, reading books, starting stuff, data. The second one is boldness. I think it's like quite simply that all actions are not created equal, that you can like do all these sort of podcasts, all these coffees, but there'll be times when you've actually got to take risky things. Mm. So maybe you reach out to someone that's like really successful and Mm. that like you're a little bit scared of or putting something into the public that's, Mm. and it requires bold action. And the third one is like one that we've just talked about a lot, which is being reflective. And I think reflection leads to independent thinking because it's very hard to copy other people's ideas when you're having to be truthful to yourself um, and you're like actually writing on a paper. And so trying to get your authenticity out to the world. What do you guys think of that? I I 100% agree. And I think you should start with a third one first because then you can gauge, hey, am I being bold or am I having velocity in the context of what I want in, yes. in my life? And that's what something you said before, which is like, hey, like I'm doing this thing because I really believe in it and I'm working 80 hour weeks, so I'm doing that, but that's not for everyone and that's completely okay, right? Yeah. And I think that's something I, like I learned too late in life where, not too late, but like I learned later than I, than, than I wanted to, which is like, hey, like what am I doing all these things in the context of and yes. where am I moving towards? Is it just being mimetic and like following some kind of hierarchy or is this actually yeah. what I want my life to look like? Little pushback on that one. I actually put velocity first because I meet some younger students who mm. they just don't know what they like. Yeah. They don't know yeah, what yeah, to I do. Agree. And so they actually don't know what to reflect on. So I tell these people like just spend a week, coffee as many people as possible, read articles from all different sources, get an idea when you're passionate about one, latch onto it. Mm. But like I, I do directionally agree yeah. with you. Yeah. Um, I agree with all of this and so not a heap to add. 
the one pushback I'd have is I think we're indexing slightly too much towards reaching out to people and having coffee and impressing others versus doing our own thing. Mm. Like at the end of the day, I don't think I ever really tried to network or have coffee with a heap of people. Excuse right? me, uh, <laughs> Max. I, 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 what? So, so that you're the king of that. No, that that, that you, said you did like a hundred lunches in a year. No, I did one. With You've Satcher. met everybody in <laughs> yeah. Sydney. You've coffeed yeah. everybody. <laughs> I, did, I did one with Satcher. <laughs> no, um, that's not true. So, yeah, I think it's interesting. I don't think I ever really reached out to people way above me and tried to have coffee with them, right? I reached out to you when I was going to start that 100 lunches thing, and mm. that was maybe one example yeah. way back when I started shit lunch uni. and you're like, this is yeah. a bad idea. <laughs> not, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I never think, I don't think I actually did much more of that. And I think the model I ended up following instead was learn more, become more interesting, do your own things, and then you don't need to reach out to this person as someone another person under them pestering their LinkedIn inbox for advice, you're reaching out to them on level footing or you're reaching out to them with someone who actually has ideas to contribute. Um, so my slight pushback towards this whole world at the moment of reach out to everyone, network with everyone, and that's the salve, is that people replace actually learning and actually upskilling and actually doing things mm. with just reaching out and building a network. I agree with that. Yeah, actually, I completely agree with that. Like, do your research first, bring something to the table, whether that's even just questions, but bring it yeah. to the coffee. But there's something very important about, like, meeting people in person, and I think that's something – that's just inspiration. You're not going to get, like, really mm. inspired or passionate sitting in your room reading articles. I think you get inspired by stories from people – People that have done it and people that you can form a connection with and start to believe you believe mm. in you as well. Um, quickly, what do you think have been the big, biggest accelerants for you in the last two years prior to prior to kind of this current venture on? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, realizing that being myself is a superpower, and what I mean by that is, I think there was a period I went through where I tried to do things or say things that other people wanted. Mm. Right? Like when, you in, when you're going through an investment banking path, you say things what they, that they want to hear, mm. right? Or I wouldn't, and I think the, the biggest change for me was actually just expressing things I believe in, mm. actually expressing things I'm learning about, mm. actually expressing my personality versus trying to be the person other people want me to be. Mm. And this is polarizing. I live in a polarization model now, right? Some people might listen to you and be like, oh no, fuck this dude. Mm. Um, such a weird dude. Some people really get on with you. And I prefer to polarize people very quickly by expressing who I am. Yeah. So I actually think that was the number one accelerant. Mm. I love that idea. Being yourself is a superpower. Like it's so obvious and it's a bit like cliche at times as well. But just like what are the things in you that are like actually magical that can add a lot of value? And I think like when you're acting authentically, like it's, everything just comes so much easier. You're not worrying about other people. You're just like acting as you. So Max, you've come like a really long way to like what you're doing now. You're once sort of working at Goldman Sachs, working at a bunch of startups, but now you're founding your own company. And from what you've been telling Satch and I, you're working like hundred hour weeks. You've sort of got a bit of a team together. We'd love to just hear your observations of like what life as a founder is like right now. And you can sort of speak to that as broadly as you want. But like some of the things I think would be really interested about is like what your schedule looks like. What are those moments of like success and just joy in a day? What are the moments of despair as well where it gets really hard, but just generally mm. what's life been like over the past few months being a founder? Yeah, I think a lot of it is the things I've always wanted to do and always tried to do. And I used to get penalized for it. And now I get rewarded for it. So like, what's an example? 
let's re- rewind, rewind to high school days, right? I used to never do homework. I used to sneak out of class and I still wanted to do well, but I wanted to do it my own way. I still wanted to work long hours, but I wanted to do it my own way. Um, back then you got penalized for it. Now you get rewarded for it. So in terms of the whole um, work hours, etc., it's similar, but now I can actually work the way I want to work, the way that I actually think moves the needle. So basically every day I, I wake up and I say, what is the thing I can do today to actually move the needle? Because it's really easy to get into the rut of being busy without actually getting shit done. So every day I post a, a stand up in our Slack. These are the things I'm working on. At the end of the day, I post um, a summary of what I actually worked on and my hours worked, which I track using an app called Rise. Great app. Can you, can um, you give us a little summary of the hours worked since you started? Um, yeah, yeah. So I will wake up around 8. I'll be at my computer around or well, 8.15. I'll wake up. I try to schedule a call for 8.30 because so that forces up. me to get out of bed. <laughs> yeah. um, so I have a cold shower a minute or two, then hop on the call. Yeah. Um, and then I will work through till around 12.31 and then I'll go to bed. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, now, don't get me wrong. That, that sounds like, oh, you're behind your laptop for 16 hours a day, 16 and a half hours a day. Well, not really, right? There's still lunch in there. There's still dinner in there. <laughs> You've been working yeah, out. I, I, I will, I, I've changed my exercise routine to be every day but only 20 minutes per day, which I actually think works better because A, you can work out with higher intensity because every exercise is like a first exercise. Um, B, I like it because it acts as a break, mm. right, in between every day. Um, and you're doing this seven days a week? And I'm doing that, yeah, some sort of exercise seven days a week and, for around and 20 this minutes. Schedule, this 16 yeah, this hours. schedule, wow. 16 hours a day, yeah. um, uh, seven days a week, we, yeah, which wow. which I enjoy. Like for me, I get a hit So you're working basically over 100 hour weeks? Um yeah, like, like, like it's easy to say you're working 100-hour weeks, right? Because if you're behind your laptop 100 hours, you're like, oh, I'm working 100 hours. Yeah, I actually yeah. don't think that matters. What matters is what are you getting done when you're behind your laptop? Because yeah. I don't want to be some monkey just like tapping away at a keyboard. Mm. What matters is like every day am I moving the needle, mm. right? And sometimes I'll send a message to Slack being here are the 30 things I did to this day, today and it was a shit day because I didn't move the needle, mm. right? So I think that really matters. The other thing i found with being a founder is that there's a lot of dogma. There's a lot of people saying, oh, you should do something this way. You should do it some other way. Mm. And I really, really dislike dogma. I've always disliked dogma, but I now have realized how much dogma there is around being a founder. So stealth mode is one example. Many people say to me, oh, why would you build in stealth, right? Shouldn't, shouldn't you shout it out to the world so people can do what you're doing? But for me, from first principles, it makes more sense to, to build in stealth. Why? Um, why? Th- three reasons. One, you can control the narrative better. Two, you can pivot more frequently without having to change the narrative. Three, there's the competitive risk element as well. Um, the other um, like dogma is around how fast do you want to move, right? And every day I need to be fast with trying to move the needle. But my view is you don't have to be super fast with working out the very specific idea you want to optimize. I think premature optimization is really, really fucking deadly. Mm. I've seen a lot of healthcare companies that start prematurely optimizing something that should not even exist, right? Um, So I think this is particularly true in healthcare, which is an industry where we literally have not seen like a single decacorn, more or less. Mm. And I think a lot of the time it's because not enough people stop to actually think, okay, what makes sense? What is the 10-year way of getting to where I want to get to? I think a lot of people pick one small problem and they start prematurely optimizing it. Or a lot of people in healthcare just try to do financial innovation, right? The US healthcare has really been, let's not actually do product innovation, let's do financial innovation. Let's find someone to pay for it because there's some new act that has passed or some new trend in healthcare 
and let's tap into that financial innovation. Something I'm um, curious about yeah. is like when you're going through that kind of initial moment in yeah. the morning where you're like, okay, what moves the needle the most today? Mm. What's your kind of like database or like of actions that you could potentially do? Where does that come from? Because like something yeah. I'm curious of is like being a young founder, it's mm. like, well, what, what do I actually do? And, and, and how do I select? Like, where does that selection come from? If that makes sense. Yeah, so I'm constantly refining a list of hypotheses. Yeah. And right now I have maybe seven to 10 hypotheses. Mm. And then under each of those hypotheses, I have several ways I can validate them. Okay. And it's always which hypothesis is the most important one for me to validate mm. out of the people on the team, which is the one that I'm best suited to validating. Yep. And then let's validate that as quickly as possible. Okay. So that's a large, large part. Are those hypotheses yeah. all directed to that one sort of, uh, product or idea that you're working on or are they like sort of different ones that you're testing at the same time which might lead to different product iterations or completely different products yeah so there's one thing we're trying to do the steps you take to get there are slightly differently mm. naturally um and you can't build everything all at once yeah right so it's like one thing we we know or i i really believe should be what healthcare looks like and the question is okay how do you do it in what yeah. order do you launch what's the what's the financial model for it who pays for it etc so so the, the, it's kind of like yeah. the, the lean startup in, in some ways where you're in this kind of validation section at the moment and then you like when you turn into like more proper build focus or proper raise focus yeah. all those things you're kind, that's that's See, I, I, I hate from. the lean startup methodology because the lean startup methodology is very much, I have no fucking idea what I want to do. Mm. Let's just test different shit. Mm. Whereas my view is I know exactly what 10 years or 20 years or 30 years should look like. Mm. Um, what is the right path to get there? What I features see. should we prioritize? What messaging do customers resonate with and not resonate with? Mm. Who is our initial target customer? Who's the next customer, okay. et cetera. Well, one thing about yeah. stealth, like when you're sort of out into the world, yeah. it might be easier to test things because yeah. you can tell your idea to more people, uh, customers, like experts in the field. Does that appear to be a problem at um, we chat with customers. We chat yeah, okay. with experts. Yeah. We don't necessarily share our full 10-year yeah. vision. Mm. Um, but, yeah, we chat with them. We show yeah. them product demos, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. What, what's it like thinking 10-year intervals? Like, you'll, <laughs> you know, you'll be a yeah. very different person in 10 years. Your team will have changed yeah. a lot. That's – um. Like you, you see it done, but not probably as frequently as it should be. Like what's that like committing to something for yeah. 10 years? How does it feel? I think it's easier for me to think in terms of 10 or 20 year intervals mm. than it is to think in terms of 10 month intervals. Mm. Because 10 month intervals are largely driven by the market, yeah. right? Whereas 10 year and 20 year intervals are largely driven by opinion. What mm. can we create, right? You can create the 10 year future or the 20 year future. It's very hard to create what the market does in the next 10 to 12 months. Mm. Um, so I always say internally, we want to be short term, we want to be market aware, long term, we want to be opinionated. Yeah. Ooh. And so kind of looping back to what Adam said before, what are kind of been like the highs and lows, things that have been tough or easy that you kind of, you didn't expect before kind of launching into this journey? I am someone who likes to go to, to think through many variables simultaneously mm. and and I'm quite comfortable with uncertainty. Mm. I'm quite comfortable thinking in terms of long time horizons. I'm quite comfortable with delayed gratification. Mm. Um, I'm quite comfortable with tough scenarios and conversations. Now, I don't think that is universally true. Mm. So I think one thing that I didn't realize is that as a founder, as anyone leading anything, you actually need to manage how you communicate with the team. You need mm. to manage how other people, whether they feel uncertainty or not. Mm. Right? Like a characteristic startup in this bucket would be a company like Val. Mm. They're doing something that might never work. So for the founders, the founders should constantly be thinking about, okay, is this going to work? How can we make this more likely to work? Mm. It's very hard for the founders to communicate to the team we have no fucking idea what we're doing. We don't know whether this is going to work or yeah. not, etc. They need to actually provide quite a bit of clarity to the team mm. and direction because founders 
by virtue of being founders are inherently the kind of people who are capable of dealing with risk and uncertainty. Employees, by virtue of being employees, I think often aren't inherently um, willing or should be or, or should deal with like high uncertainty. Mm. So I think that's one thing I, I've, I've realized. Yeah. I'm really interested. Like, and like, sorry, quick, quickly on that. Yeah. I also think that's a, that's a reason why you shouldn't hire too early. Right? I've seen some startups that hire, raise very quickly, hire a very big team, then pivot five to ten times, and employees leave, they lose motivation, they don't believe in the vision, etc. I think by the time you start actually scaling the team, you need to be very clear on what you're working on. Mm. Mm. I'm really interested into like what you've learned about your own strengths and weaknesses through going through this process because like you're doing a lot, like these sort of 100-hour weeks, making a lot of decisions, having to hire people. Like what have you learned about yourself? Um, yeah, there, there, so, so a couple things. I'd say one thing is that I process a lot. I, I read and consume a lot of data. I listen to a lot of things. I chat with a lot of people. And then I'm able to process the different insights or variables to arrive at a conclusion. And often I do that quite quickly in my head. And sometimes I say what my conclusion is to others without actually articulating the steps to get there. And they're kind of left sitting there like, okay, sure, but like why? Right? And I think one thing I've realized is I need to be much better at articulating why I've arrived at a decision mm. versus just saying, oh, this is the decision. So it's like showing them working on, on, like, on a mass equation, right? Like we yeah. always talked to that in high school like so yeah. someone else can follow along. Beautiful, beautiful example. Yeah, so like for me recently, there were like three things I said. I said, these are the key hypotheses we need to validate and let's do this as quickly as possible. And the team was like, why? And then I'm like, yeah, good point. Let me try and write it out. I ended up writing out like a multiple thousand word doc and it was bullet points and still as short as possible mm. right so i think that's one thing that's both a strength and that allows me to come to a decision quickly a weakness in that others aren't always brought along the journey um of my decision making mm. yeah that's a good example. and then like trivially one thing i've been thinking about is um energy in the morning what changes how much energy we have in the first third of the day because i i am someone who often has coffee. lower energy <laughs> in the first third of the day and i actually don't think for me coffee is an enormous variable I think a large variable is do I wake up at, in light sleep naturally or do I wake up in the middle of deep sleep, mm. right? So, for example, yesterday, my alarm woke me up in the middle of deep sleep. And for my first six, eight hours of the day, I was like borderline illiterate. Mm. My thinking was off. I was kind of chaotic. I was more stressed. Mm. And another irrational belief I have, going back to my list of irrational beliefs, is if we wake ourselves up in the middle of deep sleep, our mind is kind of fucked for the first, like, third of the day. Mm. So I've been thinking very deliberately, uh, in, in, introspecting very deliberately about how I can maximize my energy and performance through different periods. That'd be a cool feature of an aura ring that it vibrates in within a certain window where you're yeah. in kind of more shallow sleep to wake you up. If you can, if you, if you have that flexibility in your schedule. Yeah. Yeah. A few of them, a few of them do it okay. now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, you're going to go. No, no, no. Okay. No, no. I was going to say, we should also dive into the V. Uh, we can explore the founder bit for a bit more, but, I'm interested to hear your yeah. thoughts as well, Sachin. Yeah. So I'm sure everyone listening knows, but Sachin, you recently-ish, so la uh, mid to late last year, you started a new job at Airtree, mm. which is one of the largest, if not the largest VC in Australia. And Airtree is invested in multiple unicorns. And you came in through a slightly less conventional path. Yeah. Um, how have you found it? What, what have the key learnings been? What has been easy and hard? Yeah. yeah. I've um, So I've loved it. I think yeah. it's... It's a lot 
more similar to podcasting than I thought yeah. in a way where I think if you're a good VC associate, it's to do with the quality of your questions. We spoke about this a little bit with Tim Doyle and he, he was kind of attacking VC associates. And I agreed with what he said that I don't think people should be giving advice off the back. So I've found that part of it like really interesting where for a lot of my day, I get to talk to really interesting people building really interesting things and question their thinking and question how they got there and what drives them. And I think that part of the job has come very naturally and I've really liked I think the part of the job that excites me as kind of a growth opportunity is a more analytical side. So I haven't come from like a traditional, more private equity or investment banking background. And at Airtree, we are quite analytical in the way we look at companies, especially kind of at the later stage. And I've like I came into this job thinking that our oh, modeling was a bit woo-woo and stuff like that, as you, as you kind of do with venture. And I think a lot of the times the models are wrong. Like everyone will tell you that. But the actual thinking involved in building those models makes you a lot better of an investor because you think through the drivers of a business a lot better. Mm. And I think that baseline training and looking at kind of what actually drives a business, how does that change from consumer to SaaS to um, any other type of model is really, really interesting. And I think that... The top VC, my thesis is the top VCs in the next 10, 15 years will have gone through that more vigorous kind of Bill Gurley style training. Mm-hmm. And, I've, and, I, and I've completely flipped on how important I, I think that kind of stuff is. Mm. Two, two threads here. So I, I want to double click on the um, founder versus financial background for investing. Mm. But first, I want to red team this idea that associates shouldn't give advice. Mm. Now, I, I, I don't know which side I believe in, mm. but I'll, I'll red team what you said. And mm. one view is that... As a founder, I want associates to give advice. I want everyone to give advice. Not so I can listen to it, but so I actually know what other people are thinking. Mm. If someone gives advice, I know where their head's at. Yeah. Right? Versus if someone just sits there passively and agrees, then I don't know where their head's at. I don't think associates (laughs) should give advice from the basis of insecurity. Yeah. So, like, if you're someone that has seen 20 healthcare companies and you've seen patterns... Um, as, as you well could in your first one or two years of venture. I think those things and observations and all those kinds of things are worth sharing. And I think feedback is very much worth sharing. I think advice and feedback are slightly different where mm. feedback is a bit lower ego in the sense of it's like, hey, I've done this pattern matching. Our fund's thesis is X, Y, Z about this time. This is maybe why we're passing right now. And this is maybe what we'd kind of like to see. But it's not like, hey, you're coming with me. Within 15 minutes, I'm like, oh, healthcare sucks because, I don't know, um, sales cycles are long and hospitals are a thing. And, and then that's my, like, opinion. And I think what Tim is alluding to is that sometimes that comes out of, like, insecurity or, or, like, the desire to appear competent by giving advice. I understand what you're saying, but I think there's, like, a, a, a place in the middle where you can give advice that actually comes from somewhere because it's a waste of your mm-hmm. time as a founder if someone just gives you kind of shitty advice. So, yeah, like, two things. I think one, as a founder you want lots of advice and you want to discard 99% of it, Mm. right? Like I often ask people, what do you think of this? What's your view? What's your view on how we should do this? Mm. And 99.9% of the time, I actually don't think their view is probably the correct view. Mm. But I think more information can sometimes be useful, not always. Mm. I think what you're getting at is this idea of like the advice that comes from an ego perspective or the advice that feels like, oh, I know, sitting up here on my high horse, I know. I don't, when I think of advice, I never think of that as advice. I think of that as just being like a dickhead or being mm. socially out of tune. I think the best advice is often someone asking you a question. Oh, have mm. you thought about this? Yeah. Or oh, what would it look like if this happened? Mm. With their healthcare example, oh, there haven't been many healthcare unicorns. Yeah. That's something we often think yeah. about. Um, 
do you think that's a concern? So I actually think advice often comes in the form of questions. I, I agree. And advice in the sense that maybe Tim talks about, which is saying, oh, no, you should do this instead. Mm. I actually don't even think that's advice. I think that's just the person being stupid. Yeah. And, and, and I think like the more macro thing on this is that when you join a VC fund, no matter what level you join at, you have a massive amount of imposter mm. syndrome. And I actually think that's a good thing, right? Yeah. You should be holding founders in a lot higher regard than you have for yourself in this kind of hierarchy of who's doing interesting things, mm. right? And if that's the case, and you're talking to someone that's like a 50-year-old PhD in a certain area, and you're someone that's in their 20s kind of, uh, you know, kind of learning about the world more so. I think that imposter syndrome is so healthy and it should be there, but I think sometimes it overwhelms people and that's when those insecurity or those ego things kind of try and come out because you're trying to improve yourself. Mm. And, you know, VC associates aren't the most liked people in the world as well because a lot of founders are like, who are you to be talking to me about this kind of stuff, right? right? So I think there's this balance where I think you can give advice or show trends through good question, yeah. through asking good questions. And that's actually what I think one of the massive benefits of the podcast has been. On on the second point, um, and I think you're kind of touching on it here, is that uh, you haven't been a founder, right? Mm. And there's this binary in VC um, of VCs who are founders and VCs who aren't founders, mm. or often that is rephrased as VCs who are founders versus VCs with financial backgrounds. Yeah. And for the past maybe five to 10 years, the narrative was you want VCs who are founders. Mm. Now we're starting to see the re-emergence of the other narrative, which mm. is that you want VCs who have um, finance backgrounds. Yeah. The benchmark team is the quintessential example. How do you think about like whether not being a founder impacts you and the, and whether in the future more VCs are going to be founder types mm. or um, investor yeah. types? It's a good question. I think, the premise I'll add to this is that like Chamath ran some numbers recently. I think yeah. it was in one of the latest All In episodes. It actually showed that people from financial backgrounds had to be more successful. Mm-hmm. I don't know the methodology. There were just a lot more of them as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's probably biases at- attached to that. So the way I think about it personally is that I think one of the best things being a founder gives you that's not attached to advice is the empathy that you have mm-hmm. with, with someone, right? And there's nothing worse than talking to someone about your company when they have no idea what it's actually like to build a company. And I think one of the most pivotal moments of my life has been those two to three years where my dad was actually starting a disability tech startup. And he wasn't earning an income then. I was helping him probably like 10, 15 hours a week on building this business with him. And I helped him raise, I went to pitch to VCs for him and stuff. And I wouldn't like, I did not do the full-time founder thing with him. But that experience, I think about that every single time before I meet a founder. Every single time I think, could they have been in that position? Mm. Could they have experienced the tears and like, the, all the kind of things that go along with being a founder because I know how tough that journey was for him and his self-esteem and our family. So I think that the thing that I wouldn't be even comfortable doing this role with is if I didn't have that empathy. And I think mm. you build that empathy through that experience, right? Yeah. Would I know the kind of nuances of go-to-market that someone who's you know exited a company would know? No, right? And maybe, maybe they'll make me a better or worse investor. I don't actually know. But I think if you can't have that empathy to start off with actually understanding how someone mm-hmm. feels and then ask them good questions on top of that, I think you're kind of halfway in the grave. What are your thoughts on the role of niceness? Yeah. And Blackbird is famous for giving founders who chat with their associates NPS quizzes mm. and all the associates get ranked. Mm. And one thing that that... Uh, makes me think is that it creates the perverse incentive for the VC to arguably be too nice Mm. and to not say the things that need to be said. And if a founder isn't hearing the things that need to be said, it's hard to improve. Um, What are your thoughts on like the role of niceness? 
I think every so I think this is something I venture that every single person within it has to craft their own way of doing yeah. it, right? So like if I look at the Airtree team, all the partners have such a distinct way of kind of uh, handling um, kind of founder relationships, handling comms, all those kinds of things. And that's what makes them all great. Because when you see them sitting around an IC committee, they bring such different perspectives. They bring such kind of different uh, kind of relationship styles with founders. And that's something I, I don't think people really appreciate enough about VC is that when you get in, there's no rule book. Mm. There's nothing like pe- people like, Hey, go find companies. Hey, go analyze these deals when they come. Hey, do this. There's no like one telling you what to do. And so when you come from a more hierarchical investment bank, your consulting background, it's kind of weird. Like you yeah. have, you're completely in charge of your own schedule. You need to go find companies. You need to do this. You need to go find like theses and stuff like that. And what I quickly realized is that you can learn something from everyone's individual style. But coming back to what I was saying before about creative, creative if you don't actually know yourself and what you're naturally good at and you can't express that into the world, you're not going to be a great VC because everyone's style is so different. And I think that if someone met all the Airtree associates, because they're the only ones that I know, they will see a very, very different style in each one. And so coming back to what you're saying, I think that people are always going to be in the spectrum of niceness because that's kind of part of who they are. And Mm -hmm. I don't think you should change that within a massive bounds to fit some kind of certain mold. How I'm thinking about it personally is that I'm naturally a people person. I'm not going to be your kind of... Keith Raboy yeah. talking shit about people on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. It's just not who I am. And I wouldn't be happy with myself if I was. But what I'm trying to do really deliberately is whenever I send a feedback email, think about it for 10, 15 minutes. Really, really think about why I've passed on this company. What are the reasons? Have I been biased? What are the mental models I've used? And is there any heuristics here that are actually uncorrect? And I think this is the evolution of just naturally challenging your thinking more and more. And mm-hmm. I'm nowhere near like, you know, where I want to be, but mm-hmm. it, it just gets better with time. And then I think I'm trying to be a lot more blunt, but also being like low ego as well. Like we say mm-hmm. in a lot of our feedback emails that, hey, this is our thesis. This is why we think X, Y, Z. This is, you know, what we think you need to get to. But considering you've been in this space for 10, 15 years, we meet X number of companies a week. This is our kind of, you know, our half an hour, one hour view on this, right? So we could be wrong. But mm-hmm. this is our thinking and we've probably got that advantage of pattern matching, which may be helpful to you. That's a great answer. And something I'm really curious about, Max talked about this idea of like doing something every day that can push the needle. Mm. So you've got this idea, you want to be in venture like super long-term. You want to be like a great investor over decades. Mm. Like what are some of the things that you're thinking about how you can sort of, what are the things that can push the needle for you to be a really great investor thinking with a multi-decade approach? Yeah, so I think the best way to think about this is think about the two main things you do, which is, one, make good companies. Two, make decisions on those kind of companies. And so for me, I think I think a lot about top of funnel and I think a lot about how in the next, you know, 10, 20 years, how I can meet the best companies. And this podcast helps with that. Like branding really, really helps. And me and Max actually had this conversation where you could go the real outbound approach and really try and find good companies all the time. But that doesn't like that. Uh, doesn't kind of scale well because it's this labor cost attached to it and probably a lot of other people are doing the same thing. However, if you've built this brand over five, 10 years where people know you about things and they resonate with, with certain things you're saying, that gives you kind of an immediate leg up into finding cool companies because it's just a visibility point of view. Um, the second thing is, is like, I think you can incrementally get better at finding good companies when you know things about certain areas. So for me, that's kind of biotech, health, consumer, climate that I'm trying to kind of know a little bit more about so that I can ask good questions and so I can deep dive into certain things and have theses. We sometimes find companies through having a thesis about something. 
And then the second thing is making good decisions. And that does like, I refuse to believe that anyone is a good VC within their first one or two years or, or like the best in the world, right? I think a, there's a lot of luck involved, but just like a lot of it is doing the reps. A lot of it is kind of being in the room with really smart people. So you learn how to make those decisions better. And for me personally, not coming from that analytical background, it's a lot of focus on those skills of really clearly articulating things in my writing, really clearly articulating, you know, understanding the deep intricacies of a company's balance sheet and an income statement. And I'm really lucky that I joined VC late 2022 where these things are mattering a lot more than they used to. And I'm really grateful for that where it's not this like sexy doing a hundred deals a year thing, but it's like learning how to actually be a good investor. How important do you think a social brand is? Because I hear a lot of investors talk about like what's really important is actually having really tight relationships with a number of people mm. that are quite influential in, in the space I, I and getting sort of referral from founders and not so much getting the inbound. But and that's like what Benchmark type. do and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. And I think that it's just, it comes down to style. Like it's just like, what are you naturally good at? What do you want to do? If you're not someone that's like really public, that's a really good way of doing it. If you kind of have the time, do all of them at the same time. Mm. I don't think they're mutually exclusive to each other. Mm. And I think this is like, this is what I like to do anyway. So I'm trying to cultivate like the things that I intrinsically love to do because otherwise this job, like I, I said this to people, a lot of people want to get into VC now and stuff like that. I actually think a lot of people should join a startup before to build that empathy and stuff like that. But the second thing is like this job actually fucking sucks if you don't like actually intrinsically love technology and startups. All day you're talking to people about ideas and stuff like that. If you're your natural mimetic person that's trying to follow status, this job's going to suck. It's going to suck way more than investment banking and stuff like that because you'll like literally have to love this stuff or you'll be like kind of caught out within the first kind of month that you're there. Mm. Yeah. I'm also interested about how important you think having a prepared mind is because you said like it makes it easier if you know the sort of markets that you're looking for and the ideas within those markets that are important. Some investors talk out against that a lot, like mm. Founders Fund and Peter Thiel especially. They mm. say that like if you come trying to sort of market map, come with a prepared mind, it's all, almost already too late. Mm. I would like assume it's a really important thing just to have a more targeted approach. How are you thinking about that? I think there's a combination of both. And this is the magical thing about venture is like Peter Thiel can say that because he's Peter Thiel. I don't know like how, how other funds can say that, right? And I think there's this this element of, like even all the current benchmark partners will be thinking, hey, how do we replicate the success of the last generation, right? They would be given all the tools and all the thinking models and stuff like that, but will they find the next eBay? Who knows, right? And so there's this massive kind of, this point of like, it, it, it's like, it's almost a metaphor of life where it's like, you can put yourself in the arena and you can, give yourself every possibility a possible chance of finding those companies but eventually some will slip through the radar yeah i think it's because um peter Thiel and founders fund are trying to invest in natural monopolies mm. um businesses that get compound that get that compound with scale in terms mm. of their defensibility yeah and those natural monopolies tend to be non-obvious yep. and they tend to come around once every 10 years mm. and they tend to require a really opinionated founder mm. and I think that is polarized against the traditional way a fund invests. You've been rereading zero I think, to one. <laughs> no, I haven't. I think a lot of um, funds aim for unicorns. Mm. A lot of funds think, okay, can this company become a unicorn, and then can we exit it? Yeah. And the criteria you are looking for in both the scenarios is quite different. Yeah. And Peter Thiel, I actually think, wouldn't have invested in basically a single company in Australia mm. because. I am very bearish in any company in Australia's moats, mm. right? Like what is Canva's moat? Okay, some people say it has a marketplace of templates. Some mm. people say it can spend more on templates 
and amortize the cost over its millions of users? I don't really think so. I think if you gave someone $100 million, they could replicate Canva brick by brick. Mm. Canva's moat is fundamentally brand, mm. right? And don't get me wrong, I think brand is a powerful moat. If someone created the Canva copycat today, Canva's still going to win because you may as well just go to Canva. It's what comes first to mind. <laughs> um, but I think the founders fund investors want to invest in in my mind, the only two moats that continue to scale in the margin, which is either A, economies of scale, mm. which is really like the Tesla approach. Yeah. If you can produce something for cheaper than anyone else and higher quality, mm. others can't compete. Yeah. And network effects. Network effects can continue to scale in the margin Does as well. Does economies of scale work with software businesses though? Um, no, not really. I think yeah. the philosophy with SaaS businesses is that we have high switching costs. Mm. We have high switching costs. We have cohorts who are going to spend more with us each year on a cohort basis. Um, we spend a lot to acquire them up front, but then because of these high switching costs and increasing spend with us each year, we can justify that high spend up front. Mm. So I think that's the SaaS model. Um, now, there are some examples of SaaS which also have a, a, mm. a network element or a marketplace element yeah. or like a third-party marketplace sort so, of element. So you don't think um, yeah. monopolies can be built with like technological innovation or technological moats? Um, what, what do you mean by, by like, that? Like, sorry, yeah. uh, like a moat yeah. that is kind of technology-driven. Do you think that like always gets like eradicated out? consider a company like Andrew, uh, like a founders fund portfolio company. But, but that's also like economies of scale sort of as well. Category leader. So, mm. so you have some companies that come along and have some sort of technological moat. Mm. But I think technological moats end up turning into economies of scale moats. Yeah. Because technology, if someone has enough money, is replicable, mm. right? And NVIDIA is the example. Other people can create GPUs. Mm. Um, it's, not like you, it's not like they're impossible to create. It's just that NVIDIA has honed the art of creating GPUs mm. and brought the cost down of GPU manufacturing such that it's hard for other people to compete. So I think technological moats end up evolving into economies of scale moats. Mm. Um, and don't get me wrong, bundled in there is still technological know-how. Yeah. Taiwan Semiconductor, okay, sure, they uh, they have economies of scale, but they also have this like deep technological know-how. Mm. So I think that matters. I just think that scales in the margin less than economies of scale or network effects. I think the only way of creating a natural monopoly is through a business that continues to get better in the margin. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those businesses with technological moats don't get better in the margin. What I mean by that is they don't get better as they have more users. Mm. That makes a lot of sense to me. Let's put a pin in this and yeah. kind of go to some quick fires. I'll ask yeah. you two guys um, and then we'll kind of finish up because we don't want our kind of re our listeners to get gray hairs. Are we asking Maxis? No, we'll, I'll ask both of you. Okay. Let's, okay. Um, okay. okay. Cool. Let's do it. So um, what is, and we'll kind of keep it to 15, 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. um, What's your favorite book that you've read in the last year? Uh, a reread. I actually read like 50 books last year. My favorite was still a reread. Mm. Um, June. I listened to the audiobook. I highly recommend the audiobook. It has something like eight narrators. What I really like about June is how they externalize human behavior. Some people criticize June for talking, for, for, for doing too much telling and not enough showing. Mm. I think that's the art of it. It shows the intricacies of human interaction. Mm. And I think that can only come out by telling because most people don't realize the intricacies of hum human interaction. So if you try to show it, they're still not going to realize it. Mm. If you try to tell it, you get people to start to think differently and see the world differently. I love that. 
Um, so the favourite book actually is Green Lights, but I've already talked about that. Something I really loved lately was Sam Zell's autobiography, which you yeah. told me to read because I'm trying to learn more about property development. And it's sort of random, but the first two chapters are just about his parents' upbringing. Mm. And they're both um, immigrants from Poland and they basically came to America through this really crazy r- route going through Russia and eventually into Japan. And it was just an incredible story because during uh, World War Two in Japan, it was actually like sort of segments, they were like, these individual people that took in immigrants, mm. these like Jewish immigrants and sort of homed them and like kept them safe mm. and eventually like helped them like get immigration um, into the US. And it was just like this terrific story of like bold risk taking of people that go, going through like the most treacherous situations just to save their family. And I found it so inspiring. And I just love immigrant stories and then learning about how like Sam Grell grew up, how Sam Zell grew up. He um, started this property development company. He ended up selling it for $36 billion, but just tracing the sort of immigrant mentality, how he took these really, really bold steps, Mm. just how he thought about like property um, development as well in America. I found really interesting. Cool. Who's someone you'd want to have dinner with right now? Probably Peter Thiel, which is a cookie cutter thing to say, but I find his views interesting because i disagree with many of them Mm. and i think he is genuinely multidisciplinary Mm. and i think he has thought deeply about how the world works so peter Thiel, i'd probably say like rick rubin right now i just think he's like a really funny and dynamic character and he's got like really incredible stories from decades ago about how he like really promoted like the hip-hop scene um in america and i just find him like really inspiring as like just his presence, just like the way he listens to you and he's like really sort of artistic and um, really based of his feelings. Mm. What's a common misconception that people have about you? Oh, do you want to go first, Adam? <laughs> Whilst I think. The common misconception, yeah. like my whole life post 18 was that like I'm a jock um, just because like I was like sort of sporty growing up. Like I just sort of came off that a bit, but like the people that know me know I'm really weird and nerdy. And, like, my favourite thing to do is just, like, sort of, like, staying in, like, read books and stuff. Um, yeah. I think this is a misconception people would have used to have more than they have now. But it's that I'm a mega extrovert. So if I do any of those quizzes, like a Myers-Briggs or an Ocean, it scores me in the top, like, fifth percentile on extroversion. I actually think I'm only just extroverted. I'm borderline introverted. And I think the introversion potentially comes out in this sort of podcast scenario because you can see um, – yeah, but, but I think in general, people think I'm more extroverted than I am. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I think, like, you can be quite extroverted, but yeah. really appreciate introverted time because I think mm. someone like you would find a lot of value out of, like, sort of being alone with your thoughts, reading and stuff. Um, that's how I sort of feel personally. And um, what's a recent moment where you felt really happy? Oh, good question. Do you want to go again, Adam, while, whilst I like think? Like a super recent yeah, I, I, this, the, the quick fires, the, the opposite of quick fire. <laughs> These are the most thought-provoking <laughs> questions of the lot. Um, like yeah. literally this morning. So yeah. like, I, I sort of like started that mini running club. I went for a run with Dan Brockwell and mm-hmm. Tian. And we just did like 6Ks on Bondi Beach. Um, and we are just talking the whole time. And we just had this fascinating chat, which ranged from like biology, psychology, trauma, psychedelics, like hiring, company building, et cetera. And like, they just run, just like, I forgot that I was running. It was a great chat. And then we just had this beautiful swim. The ocean was like perfectly like 23 degrees or something. And yeah, I just love sand, running, swimming, friends. Yeah, I'd say for me, it's, it was coming back to Sydney from San Francisco and forgetting how beautiful the city is, being able to see my family again. Mm. And that continues. That wasn't like an episodic event. Every day when I walk around Sydney or I take a call, 
you marvel at just how beautiful the city is, how livable the city is. Mm. So I, I would say every day, um, if I manage to get out of out of home, even if I'm just walking and talking through nature, that's that's always special. Awesome. Yeah. So let's uh, kind of not try and make this a Lex Friedman yeah. episode and wrap up here. I think I want to put a little disclaimer is that we'll probably look back on this a year ago and think everything we said was dumb to a certain mm. degree. Um, but this is, just, this is just our kind of normal discussions about life and... Um, this was a lot of fun. So yep. thanks, Max. And hopefully-